Acts chapter 18. We'll be there tonight. Continue our study in the book of Acts. If you would be there, I'll be there with you in just a moment. I'm going to warn you up front, there's some texts that line out pretty easily for devotion and some that do not. This is one that does not. And, but it's information about something that you might um, have a query about as you would read it. And I, I don't want to leave those kind of things hanging. And I sort of pressed, you know, maybe some physical th- or applications here. And so at least you know that up front. Paul is here at the terminal end of his second missionary journey. And we'll take up our reading in verse number 18 of the 18th chapter. I'll give a little background, but get right into the text. So it says, And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria. Now, this is the region of Antioch and Jerusalem. He's going home. Okay, so just to put that in perspective. Um, and do we have the map, guys, real quickly? Can I go ahead and show that, Paul, if you have it? I'll just stop here and do this. Okay, so if you look up here with me, this is really Paul's missionary journey. I don't have a pointer tonight. Uh, but Paul really began in Jerusalem. And you see that on the far right-hand side. Antioch is really his home base. And the second journey, he travels around into Asia. And he, he goes up in this area called Phrygia, there by number three. The Lord speaks to him there, says, don't go south, keep going on west. And so he goes up to Troas. He jumps across from Troas over there into Neapolis. And that's where the Macedonian call. He's responding to that. And so he goes into Philippi, meets, meets Lydia there. Churches started in Philippi. He travels on down there uh, into Berea and then Thessalonica and on down into Athens and then Corinth. And so that's where we're at. But when I say Syria, if you sit on the far right, which is probably cut off, he's going home. Okay, because different terms are used here, but I just want you to understand what's happening here is he's, he's going home. And so, after Paul, this tarried there a good while, then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence unto Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila, two new friends, having shorn his head in Centria, this was the port city, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not. Interesting. But bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. Okay, guys, the map again real quick, and I'll show this. I just want to get bearings, and then I'll pray. Okay, far left-hand side, if you find uh, Athens there in the Aegean Sea, close to below 5. So, they were in Athens and came down to Corinth, which is close to the port. He spends a year and a half there, 18 months. And so, he's going to go home, but he has to go to Centria first, which is the port city. And, of course, they don't make this journey in, in, in just one leg, so they sail over to Ephesus. Now, um, this is the longer time he had spent. He's really just passing through. So he stops there, and then he continues on to Syria. But he stops first near which Caesarea is, near Jerusalem. He fulfills his vow there, and then he goes home to Antioch. Okay? So we all have a kind of understand terms of what's happening? Great. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day, and Lord, for this study. Uh, Lord, your word is fascinating. It is enlightening. It contains so many uh, truths. And so tonight, Lord, as, as we look at kind of an esoteric text, a text, something that's unique, we may not immediately understand, Lord, I, I just pray that our biblical knowledge could be increased. 
And I pray that'd be a help to us. So I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. Paul, in these verses, is bringing to completion uh, his second missionary journey. And of course, as I mentioned, he's traveling down the coast of Greece. He's been in Philippi, and a church was started there. Um, what a fascinating sort of events there. He received the Macedonian call. He meets Lydia at a riverside. This seller of purple, this affluent woman, woman begins a church in her home. Um, this demonically possessed lady is saved there. Uh, a jailer is saved. And from that inauspicious you know, group, one of the greatest churches in the New Testament is born. Trouble is stirred up there. And uh, so Paul has to leave and goes to Berea where he meets these people who are biblically based. And they search the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And he leads people with Christ uh, there as well. He travels on to Thessalonica, and that also becomes a made hub in the New Testament. From, from Thessalonica, the Bible tells us, the gospel went west. These people were a major sounding board, an echoing chamber for Paul's message, and they were a great help to him. And they furthered the gospel and are largely responsible, like Philippi, for the gospel coming on into Rome, and then, of course, into um, you know, like the greater part of Europe, and then finding its way to us. From there he travels uh, down to Athens, and, and this is where we have the Sermon on Mars Hill. And Brother Daniel talked about that at some length uh, a couple Sunday nights ago. And, and Paul wins some people there, although again he, he's met with opposition and some difficulty. And so then he goes to Corinth. There's a great deal of time spent in Corinth uh, when Paul gets there, and he, for, for reasons that are now obvious. He's already been beaten at least twice. Uh, once left for dead. Uh, many straps and scars are now upon his back. He's been put in jail many times. And these people keep following Paul to continue to persecute him. So in Corinth, there's some fear. There's some real fear in Corinth. And so God comes to him in a very special way and says, fear not. And that was the subject of, of last Wednesday night. The, the Lord comfort him uh, into fear not. And he says, I need you to be here for a while. And that time was going to be 18 months. And so Paul continued to preach in Corinth and establish uh, you know, a good church there. We all know about the, the Corinthian catastrophe in time. Um, but Paul spent that time. The thing that really uh, stands out here is that Paul uh, met uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And these people became great champions for Christ. Incredible help to the Apostle Paul. And we talked about the importance of not going it alone. That we need friends in our life. And, and we need people help, uh, who, who love and support us. And he met these kind of friends. Already having Silas and Timothy um, and Luke, who's recording these things in the book of Acts, he adds to his team here by this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, originally from Macedonia, but as adults, uh, they had traveled to Rome and were there some time. Uh, they worked there, but the emperor got mad at all the Jews. He sent them all out of the country. And so they left and they came to Corinth, and that's where they were tip makers. And they were tip makers there. Of course, that common interest with Paul, maybe it brought their hearts together initially. You make tents? Hey, I make tents. And by the way, do you know Christ? Yeah, I do. And we don't know where that couple had met Christ, but they were probably maybe infant Christians, and so their faith was increased. But they came companions to the Apostle Paul in a great way. They were help. And so in the text we're in, um, what begins to happen here is they're on board with this missionary endeavor. They probably learn what Paul is doing. They're all about that. They've been converted to Christ. This tent making ministry can go anywhere. And so um, they travel with Paul. And so now they're setting sail uh, from Corinth after these 18 months and these companions um, with them. And, and so um, once they land, um, let me back up because I just skipped all my notes and I want to make sure I don't miss something. 
because I want to answer some things here. Back a little earlier, while in Corinth, there's this guy named Gallio, and uh, he was uh, a civic leader there in Corinth. And so the final event, the reason I'm telling you this is the final event that happened before Paul left Corinth. Um, the Jews, uh, synagogue leader, all these guys came together and accused Paul again. And this is just what happened every time the Jews came and accused Paul. He was brought before the judgment seat, again, which Brother Daniel explained to us the severity of that. And so this man, Galio, heard their case. And he basically said, listen, this is a Jewish uh, problem. He didn't see Christianity as a different sect at that time, just a, a sect of the Jews. And he says, we're just going to dismiss the case. So Paul didn't have to go to prison. But this is really odd. The, the leader of the, um, the Jews who brought him there, if I can find this very quickly, in verse 17 is this guy named Sosthenes. And this is just how bizarre ancient times were. Sosthenes is the person who brought the charges against Paul. And Gallio, the civic leader of that area, says, uh, no case. So all the Greeks around look at this Sosthenes, a troublemaker, and so, so they beat him. And so, you know, don't be a troublemaker is the lesson in all of that. And then that was the terminal event that leads us to verse 18 and Paul uh, beginning to leave for leaving Corinth to travel towards Syria, stopping in Ephesus. So the next thing we know here, I'm in the text now, Paul is on the move and begins his home back journey, uh, journey home to the region of Syria, which would be Jerusalem and Antioch. So as he leaves for Syria, he takes new friends with him, Priscilla and Aquila, and I'm assuming Silas and Timothy and Luke are with him as well. And so they go to this port of Centria. Um, so they leave Corinth, they go to Centria. And uh, something interesting happens here. It seems sort of out of place, but in Centria, um, and this is where he's headed home, uh, the Bible says that Paul shaves his head. And the idea is he shears it. So he's, you know, like he's taking all the hair that he had and he shaves it off. And the Bible says this is part of a vow. Now, the New Testament in this history of Acts never records Paul making a vow. This is the first time it's mentioned. But he makes a vow, and in fulfillment of the vow, he shaves his head. And that's mentioned here, okay? So I'm just gonna let that, leave that hanging for a minute, and we're gonna continue on with what happens next. So he shaves his head in fulfillment of vow. And then once that's done, they go from Centuria over to across the Aegean Sea and they port in Ephesus. And I don't know how long the stopover is. It's, it's not lengthy, I don't think. They're probably there to get provisions and maybe to rest. And then they would press on. But during this stopover, Paul does what Paul always does. In this city, obviously a larger city, um, there was a Jewish synagogue. It took five or more adult males to have a synagogue. So Paul says, I'm here. It's a layover. I'm on my way home, but here's an opportunity. So he goes into the synagogue and he begins to preach. And this is different. So Paul preaches. He preaches Christ and how men can be saved through Christ. And the text says that they were interested in the message. Matter of fact, they were so interested, they asked him to stay longer. Paul, this is, a, this is a really interesting message and thought. And so they entreated him to stay longer. And Paul says, I can't. Okay, and I'm going to tell you why I think he left in a moment. But he says, I can't. 
But he wasn't, um, he wasn't uncaring about the request. So I'm going to guess there's some con a conversation between him and Priscilla and Aquila. They had this tip making ministry. And so it was agreed, you're going to stay. Now, this is fascinating. So um, the team sails on from Ephesus, but Priscilla and Aquila stay. Well, just like Lydia in Philippi, um, evidently this couple um, gets involved there and buy a house. They're tent makers. They can move. And so guess where the church of Ephesus starts? In the house of Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. I mean, this is, to me, this is fascinating how these places start. We read, you know, we read the book of Ephesus, we read the book of Philippians, but this is how these places started. This couple, who had just begun to follow Paul, so bought into the message that they say, hey, we'll be a help. And they uprooted themselves from Rome to Corinth and now to Ephesus. And the text indicates they were probably there for a number of years, getting this church established. And we know historically in time they would travel back to Rome, uh, their original you know, place of abode for some years. But this, this couple is just incredible. And, and, and so they stay. Um, so Paul sails on with Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And they, they leave this and, and they go on home. And so they travel the long line there that is number seven up, up on the screen, right underneath there. And so there um, they land in Caesarea. And that's just mentioned because that's the port city. It's where you land. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he takes his hair, and he fulfills his vow. And um, there's not a lot said about if he gives any kind of report to Jerusalem. That's, that's left out of the, the text. But he fulfills his vow, and he travels, um, depending on how you look at it, up or down the coast, and into Antioch. And that's home. And that's home. And he's there uh, for an undisclosed amount of time. And, you know, sometimes the Bible goes to great lengths to describe how things happen. But look with me, if you would, in verse 23. And so he's home. You know, fast forward to this. And I love this. And after he had spent some time there, <laughs> home, he departed. Okay. Not a lot of information here. And he went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen the disciples. That is, in a nutshell, the third missionary journey. In this incredible, inauspicious way, Paul says, I'm home, I'm going to rest, and I'm, I'm leaving out again. And so the text goes on from there to begin to describe Paul's third missionary journey. And that's the text. So making some sense of this, maybe try to understand if you're in your Bible reading, and you know, not understanding this, I, I'm going to, um, I can't tell you definitively what is happening here, but I'm going to make... Uh, a really educated guest with some commentators and biblical scholars, you know, uh, doing this with me. But I want to back up um, because I think this is help, helps us understand. We understand that Christianity uh, was born out of Judaism. Does that make sense? Um, God spoke to Abraham, called him to be a father of a people, a nation, um, for he knew his heart. And that he would, he, would, he would lead his family and a nation after him. And so he calls out Abraham and then the patriarchs. Um, we can fast forward to David in his care of the Jewish people. And, and, and then the Bible tells us that from this uh, Jewish set aside 
people of God, that a Messiah would come, that a Savior. We call him the Savior. The Jews would have called him the Messiah. And um, the Old Testament really details that he would be a suffering uh, uh, servant. And, but it also talks about him eventually taking the head of government. And, and so the Jews had this kind of conglomeration of information. They chose to focus on the political part, not so much on the Savior part. Um, but that was what God intended. And in time, Christ did come, obviously. But he wasn't really met with a receptive audience from the establishment of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, and in some measure, maybe you could argue the people as a whole. Now, in part, that's because Jesus did not meet with their expectations. He didn't come to present him as a political ruler, but a savior of the soul. Um, we know from the Pharisees and scribes, part, he was rejected because he was a threat. They feared he would take their place of prominence. And these were men uh, that had position and, and didn't want to lose it to Jesus, even if he was the Son of God. Um, they didn't want to forward their place. And so pride and arrogancy caused them to reject him. Um, they rejected him in part because um, the Jewish religion had lost its way. It had lost its way. They had become about do's and don'ts and rules and regulations and they had multiplied these things into the three hundreds of negatives and the three hundreds, you know, of, of things you have to do. And they, they, they formed this religion, this relationship, and it was one of meriting grace, not receiving the gift. And they just missed the mark. The heart of God, they, maybe he had originally started there at some point, but God's heart stayed this way, and the religious establishment went way this way to the hard right. And so when Jesus came, they just were not philosophically aligned, spiritually, at all. And they weren't about grace. So this smooth transition that maybe should have been from um, Jew, Jewish religion, to this progression of Christianity, the Messiah is here, didn't happen that way. Um, but what did happen is Jews were saved. And this is part of the history of the book of Acts. Jews are saved. Um, and this is more than we need to know for our study. I just, I just think it's interesting. But being a Jew was sort of like being American. There's a lot of things that we do that we don't think about that we do that we take for granted because we're Americans. This is what Americans do. And when you're suddenly thrust into another culture, you, you realize not everyone behaves like Americans. There's just customs and rules that you don't do in other countries that we might do, but, but they do that. And it has nothing really to do with their religion. It's just their culture. Well, the Jewish people are like that. They had a religion, yes, Judaism. But Judaism was so entwined with their social customs that you really couldn't separate the two. It's like today people think they're Christians because they live in America. You know, not so much anymore, but they used to. In this case, you know, Jews thought they were God's people just because they were Jews. But there's all these customs too, especially as they're related to the law and, and honoring God. And these customs were kind of held on to even after someone was saved. And so this is why we have a lot of texts in the book of Romans. And what we had, I think, in Acts 15 and 16, where there's instruction given to the Gentiles, you're saved, that's great, and Jews were saved. But what happened when the Jews were saved, they had a hard time letting go of all the customs. Okay? That they couldn't... They couldn't pull apart between what was religion and what was custom. And so like when the Jews were saved, they still thought, well, I can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. 
And these Gentiles are going, what are they talking about? But the Jews were having a hard time letting go of not eating kosher food. Okay? Was it wrong or right to eat kosher food? It's, it's not wrong or right. The Old Testament law had a reason for separating you out to be different. But now, you don't have to do that. But if that's all you've done your whole life and someone says, hey, here's some prime rib. No, you're ingrained in thinking, I can't do that. You with me? So a lot of that traveled on. Uh, an example, uh, when the Christians, the early Christians in Jerusalem met in the temple. <laughs> well, Christ was the temple, but they still, they still felt this obligatory need to worship there. A lot of the Jews uh, that were saved would meet in, in, adjacent to the synagogue. So a lot of customs followed them. And if you read your New Testament, you'll see these customs. And Paul trying to say, um, these don't save you. But if you want to do them, it's okay. As long as you understand they don't save you. And so as you read through the book of Acts and Romans, you'll see a lot of that uh, being explained like that. And so um, this was even true of Paul to a degree. We know it's true of Peter. Um, that's another story. But it, it's even true of Paul. Paul himself was a converted Jew. And he was transitioning from all the old ideologies. He, understand, he understood truth theologically, but in practice he still did things in some ways like a Jew would do them that were more cultural than faith. And one of those things, and a long way to get to this point, he made a vow. Okay, he made a vow. There's nothing about vow keeping in New Testament theology. Okay, you with me? There's nothing about that. The Bible doesn't say make a vow. Um, it says this, and Jesus said this, if you make a vow, you should keep it. That didn't change. You know, character is still character, and keeping your word is still keeping your word. And there's numbers of texts in Ecclesiastes, in, in the Proverbs, um, where, you know, it, it's better, uh, just don't vow unless you intend to keep it. It's, that's, that's a biblical principle. And Jesus mentions for those who take a vow, you know, that they should keep it. But really, when, here's the deal. When you say you're going to do something, it's a vow. Um, I'll meet you there. A vow. Um, I'm going to commit to give this. That's a vow to God, is the New Testament teaching. And so that's why it says you better keep your vows minimal. And, and today, we don't look at vows as important. Um, like, there's all kinds of vows we can get ourselves into, you know, with the church, membership, and relationships, and then, you know, not keep those long term. And so that's the New Testament teaching. The vows are important. But Paul makes one. And um, we, we don't know where or when. It's somewhere in the second journey along this coastline of Greece. You know, it could have been in, in uh, Philippi, it could have been in Berea, it could have been Thessalonica, um, it could have maybe even as late as Athens. Um, he makes a vow. What kind of vow would he have made? <clears throat> well, the shaving of his head is an indication of what kind of vow he may have taken. In the Old Testament, we know about a vow where people um, would, first of all, not shave their hair, but grow their hair. Okay, do we know someone who did that? Okay, Samson. And so Samson took the Nazarite vow, and he wasn't the only person to do this. And so uh, the Nazarite vow included numbers of things. 
But the one that's most obvious to us is you let your hair grow long. And, uh, but that's not all. When you take a Nazarite vow, you can't drink wine. Okay? So no grape juice, no wine wine, nothing like that. You can't do that. There's some kind of interesting other things. You can't touch a dead corpse. Not that most of us do, but, but you can't. And there's a, a number kind of unique and things that you couldn't do. But the idea is this. I'm doing, I'm doing something, and they did a Nazarite vow for two reasons primarily. People took a Nazarite vow like we might uh, fast. We want something in life. We're asking God for it. And it was a way of outwardly expressing what our heart was asking for. So it was, it was pleading for something. And people took a Nazarite vow as a way of expressing thanksgiving to God's provision for something. So it was, it was either for asking something in prayer or something being answered in prayer. It would be an easy way to think about why you would take a Nazarite vow. And when you made the vow, you did it for a certain period of time. Okay, so shaving the head. So what often would happen when people took a Nazarite vow, they'd grow their hair long. And of course, you know, I don't know how long it might be, depending on how long your vow was. But then the custom was you shaved your head and then you would take your hair to Jerusalem. And you would present it there as an offering for the conclusion of your vow. It was a way of saying, God, I need this. Take it to the temple and present that. Or God, you've been so good to me. And... Um, you know, I'm here to thank you for this. And it's the way they expressed a need and or thanks. You with me? So why would Paul have said, no, I can't stay? When the, the, the people at Ephesus asked him to, my opinion is this. It's because there, there was a feast getting ready to occur in Jerusalem that he thought he could make in time. And there he was going to conclude his vow. That's my educated guess. Not saying that's what happened. I'm saying you look at all the things together, that's most likely what he's doing. So why would Paul say no to people who want to hear more about the gospel? Well, because I made a commitment to God. And I'm going to keep it. This wasn't a biblical commitment that God said he had to make. This was a commitment of his heart. And in his ethics, he said, uh, I, I, I have to do this. And if God wills, I'll be back. And did, God did will, and he did come back and spend time there. So from that, you know, let's look for some application <laughs> from that story. And I told you I'm going to stretch, <clears throat> and I wasn't fibbing. I, and this is an observation. It's not, it's not a, maybe even a fair devotional thought. It's an observation. Um, we talk about Paul's three missionary journeys, right? Possibly a fourth, depending on how you look at things, but three missionary journeys. Um, we call them three missionary journeys rather than long, one long missionary journey because each missionary journey has this in common, and every time he goes out, Paul comes back home. First missionary journey goes out to Galatia, and he comes back home. Second missionary journey, he, he goes up north, uh, back to Asia, over to Macedonia, and he comes back home. Third missionary journey, it's a little more contorted. He goes up and over and back and down, and he comes back home. And every time, it's sort of important. Um, even if there's things happening here that are important, I, I, I have to go home. Um, 
I find this interesting. Um, I've not done a thorough review, so I, I might be corrected here, but almost all of Paul's support came from the churches he started. Came from Philippi, we know that for sure. Well, no one else helped him, Philippi did. He received church from Ephesus in time, Thessalonica, even Corinth. All his support came from places that weren't home. I don't know if support came from Antioch or Jerusalem. I don't think so. I think other than that, these new churches supported Jerusalem for a while. That's how 1 Corinthians ends is, I'm collecting an offering for you to take back home. Home was important to Paul. And, and so, my, what's my point? He didn't need to come home. Like, he was getting his finances and support from Asia and Macedonia. Something else had to be drawing him back home. I, I don't know if he had a physical house there, but all his resources didn't come from there. He went home. Um, a stretch. I, I think home is important. And Paul kept going back there. You know, home is uh, supposed to be very unique and different. I know this as a fact. I could point all these cities over here in the middle. You know what he found in every one of those? Hostility and confrontation. You know what's not recorded for the most part in Jerusalem and Antioch? Difficulty and confrontation. It was home. It's a safe place to go. It was a place that Paul went to rest. Between the first and second missionary journey, Paul spent over a year there recovering from the abuses of the first journey. I don't know how long he spent time with the second and third, but Paul had fresh stripes on his back from the second one. And so he went home. It's not said that he reported back to the church of Jerusalem again. It's not said that he, he, he got some great information in Antioch. He just went there. In that little brief pause in 27, you know, there's no reports like in the, between the first and second. Paul just goes home because he, I guess he wants to. Matter of fact, he was leaving the place where his support was coming from here in Asia and Macedonia. He was going home for encouragement and strength, for guidance and safety. Um, can I suggest to you that you and I might greatly hurt ourselves if we don't have a home. We don't have roots. We don't have a safe place to go. And I'm going to broaden this, obviously. But I'm talking about the one you live in right now. It should be a safe place, encouragement, and all these things. It should be that for your children. But how about this one? In, in contemporary Western Christianity and culture, we, too many Christians are lone rangers. They think this, well, let me, go, let me go a step further than that. It is the mentality of much of contemporary Christianity to disparage the institutionalized church. Oh, they're just too formal and too many rules. And you know, why can't we all just go outside and worship God? Well, you can, but it's not home. It's not the same. Why are we here tonight? It's home. We came here to find encouragement. It's where we gather to get strength in the Word of God. 
It's where we do the work of God. We, we, we gather back here in this place. That's why God said, you know, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because important stuff happens at the home. Both physical and in this one. Too many, today we, we have such a casual attitude about this. You know, we, we pop in, we pop out, we do this and we do that. All I know is that every time Paul got hurt, he found his way back home until he couldn't get there anymore. I, I, the, the simple encouragement is don't, don't forsake this place. Don't take it for granted. There's too many lone wolf Christians, and every one of us will be stronger. Uh, you know, twofold cord, you know, is not easily broken, and you put three of them together, and you put a couple hundred of them together, and we need to do nothing but get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Is this place imperfect as an institution? Yeah, 100% absolutely. But are we better for being here? Yes, 100% absolutely. And then secondly, um, Paul's vow to me is fascinating. I don't understand it completely. But I want to say this. I think there's a place for seeking God and maybe thanking Him in a special way that is not mandated, but we do it because we want to express to God the intent of our heart in a special way. There's no New Testament teaching about vows. Save, let your yea be yea, your nay be nay. Keeping your word is a vital part of our Christian identity and ethic. And the Bible has much to say about that. But for reasons we do not know, now let's imagine, let's do both scenarios. Paul's in all this difficulty. Is it a stretch for Paul to say, well, I, I, I'm asking for your protection in a special way. I've already been beaten once. I don't want that to happen again. Okay? It's not a stretch for us to see Paul maybe asking that request of God in a very serious way. Maybe at some point in here, God delivered him the way he did. And he's saying, thank you, Lord. You got me through that. Either one works. And, and, and it's not even a stretch to see that he would do this. You know, the, 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 the closest analogy I can find for us is fasting. Okay? You can go your whole Christian life and not fast, and I don't think violate uh, the Word of God. Is that fair? It does not say thou shalt fast. Okay? But as a precept, you know, Paul brought some things over into the New Testament, like taking a vow. There's some things in the Old Testament about fasting that I think might still apply. That's really not ceremonial, right? It doesn't em really em uh, symbolize anything spiritually. What is it? It's an expression of the heart that I love God and I need Him. I'm not going to take the time to do it, but turn to Isaiah chapter 58, 58 when you get home. And it's an incredible chapter. And it talks about fasting. But here's the thing it sort of concludes with, you know, don't do it the wrong way to be for show like the Pharisees did. But if you really fast, there's this, there's this idea there, um, I'm guessing around verses 10 or 11, somewhere in that zone, that basically said, then what you're asking for could spring forth because of the fast. Fasting does not gain you merit with God. He looks upon you no more favorably because you do it. You're sealed in the righteousness of Christ once you're saved. But I don't think it's unfair to say it might capture the attention of God in a different way. When you uh, um, ask, seek, knock, you will find me when you seek for me with all of your heart, right? 
Fasting is one of the ways we do that. I'm going to say that if you have a special need, like maybe Paul, for protection, maybe for someone you love and care about, you have a desire, maybe for yourself a special need, I'm not going to say you're going to get any more God's favor for doing something like that, but I would say this, it might be good for you to do it for yourself, for your own sincerity, for your own devotion and growth, um, as an expression to yourself and the Lord that I'm really serious about finding an answer, or maybe just thanking the Lord for a provision in your life. Over my lifetime, I've done a number of fasts. For me, almost all of them are in the front of something. Lord, I need help. I need wisdom. I need direction. And I can't tell you that at the end of all those times, there's been some special breaking forth. But I'm saying this, I'm, I was probably better for it on the other side than worse. And I just want to suggest to you that there's some expressions of seeking God, I think like Paul did, that are still appropriate. I know Jesus fasted. Paul fasted, and I think that this is something that could be helpful to us as well. It's not any inappropriate to find ways of expressing our love and devotion for God. Is that fair? Okay, so there's a little bit of history and context we didn't have before. Let me ask you to stand with me tonight.